Hi, this is John Burlingame, host of Disney's Four Scores podcast. In this podcast series, we bring together the most accomplished film and television composers working today and reveal the emotional journeys, inspirations, and unique challenges of their work. Our guest today has worked with some of the industry's most celebrated and influential directors, including Danny Boyle, Guy Ritchie, Michael Mann, and James Gunn on such scores as Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, 28 Days Later, Kick-Ass, and The Suicide Squad. He's with us today to talk about his grand-scale score for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Welcome, John Murphy. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. So, John, you did Suicide Squad with James Gunn back in, I guess, 2020 or Mm -hmm. so. When did he approach you about doing Guardians 3? It was towards the end of Suicide Squad, and we'd had such a blast doing that movie. You know, James is kind of a rebel, you know? He's a rebel with a big heart, and they're my favorite people, I think. So there was a really good chemistry. We got on great. He's such a wonderful director to work with. So the whole experience felt great, you know? It felt good, and at some point before we even finished Suicide Squad, he he just rang me and said, look, I really want you to do Guardians, you know, what do you think? And I was like, what, <laughs> what do you think I'm going to say? You know, it was like, are you kidding me? You know, because I was a huge Guardians fan, you know, and I grew up with all the comic books. I grew up loving all that stuff. So I was also a big Marvel fan. So to just get the opportunity to not only work with my favorite director, but to work with my favorite movies of the whole Marvel thing, you know, was just, it was a double whammy for me. Did the two of you talk about what kind of music he might want or what direction the music should take? Because I know he likes to play music on the set, so I'm wondering if you started early. Yeah, I mean, the way James likes to work is, I mean, for him, the music is part of the story. I know that sounds like a pretty obvious thing to say because it's James Gunn, but, you know, people associate that with all of the songs he picks, but it's it's actually much more than that. For him, he's hearing the score as he's writing the script. He's not just hearing the songs. And even when I first read the script, all of the songs that are in the movie now were in the script. No kidding. They were all there. So, it, you know, it was that thought through. But, you know, knowing that he loves to use music to shoot with, you know, he, James had a big list of, of scenes that he wanted me to write and and produce and give him before he shot those scenes. And I think there was, I don't know, like 15 or 16 of the big scenes in the movie. Mostly the emotional stuff w- w- were written from the script. And that's actually easier than you would think. I mean, I, personally, I love writing from the script because, you know, you're not constrained by, you know, the picture changing or cuts or, or suddenly visuals that might sort of distract you from the story. When you're writing music to a script, you're really just dealing with the story and nothing else. So you can kind of get a little deeper emotionally working that way. So, you know, I got to write most of the main themes in the movie, even before they shot them. And it also gave James a chance to react quite early on and go, oh, that feels good, or maybe that's the wrong tone for this. So by the time he shot these scenes, he, you know, he had themes that he was pretty happy with. And the funny thing is, every one of the themes that I wrote from the script ended up in the movie. No kidding. Yeah, I mean, you know, it had to be reworked because the picture was changing the way it does. And 
you know, some of them had to be rearranged, but, um, but yeah, they, they all stayed, you know. So this is very much a story about Rocket, I think, and his, yeah. his background and how he became who he is. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you approached that part of the story? What kind of music you felt Rocket's story would need? Well, it's a very emotionally dynamic story, and none more so than with Rocket. So James didn't really want to sugarcoat the trauma and what happened to Rocket because part of what made him worry is what happened to him and, and these terrible things that happened to him. So we kind of approached the early part of the film in a very raw way, you know, there was no, you know, toning it down. So a lot of the score, certainly in the first quarter of the movie, you know, it's quite brutal and some of it's quite violent because we wanted the audience to feel this is what Rocket went through. This is what traumatized him. This is what made him become the Rocket that we grew to love in the first two movies. And it's what actually then moved him to become the Rocket that he is by the end of volume three. So it wasn't just the arc of this film that we had to consider. It was the arc of the whole trilogy. Mm. We had to take into account what the, you know, start with what the audience feels towards Rocket in those first two films and then fill in all these spaces emotionally. And so it was a big arc, you know, musically for me. So, you know, there's a, you know, as I said, it's a very emotionally dynamic score, but I think it had to be because mm. that's what the story was. And so are there different themes that represent different aspects of the story? Yeah, there are themes to do with friendship. There are themes to do with sacrifice. There are themes, you know, I mean, I don't really like doing character themes. I just find them too sort of two-dimensional. Mm. But when you, you start thinking about the overriding themes that are in the story, that's when things get deep. That's when you start you know, having a deep well with this stuff. So, so yeah, there are themes that, that relate to, you know, friendship, like deep friendship. And that doesn't just relate to Rocket, that, that relates to all of the Guardians. So, you know, when you're writing themes in that way, then it's much more translatable and it's more usable in other places that, that might not necessarily be about Rocket. But I think that just enriches the score when you do that. Mm. I think it becomes more profound. One of the things about the Guardians movies is what a mixture they are of humor and action and, as you're talking about, heartfelt emotion. Can you talk about the challenge of writing music when the tone of the film is sort of often shifting and moving? Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of the more challenging things because sometimes you shift them from violence to, you know, real tenderness you know, I mean, the irony is, I think I've written some of the, the hardest, most visceral pieces in this score, but also some of the most tender things I've ever written. 
And it's tricky because, you know, you don't want to be too schizophrenic. So you have to find a way to hand over from from one to the other. And that was one of the biggest challenges, to be honest, is you know, how can we go from from 100 mile an hour to five mile an hour, you know, without jerking the audience's head back and forth. But, you know, you get there, you find a way to get there. But yeah, it's not, <laughs> you know, I'd be lying if I said it was easy. That is one of the hardest things is like that sudden jump from that to that. The high evolutionary, the sort of the major villain of the film, yeah. has a taste for opera. So <laughs> tell us how you went about writing a piece of music for him. Well, strangely enough, that was actually the first of the themes I had to write. And that did take a few tries. But we had this character who, a brilliant character, and, and Chuck just nails it, you know. He just nails that character. But yes, he has this grandiose persona, everything is melodramatic, everything is, you know, there's nothing small about the high evolutionary. So James had the idea, you know, we need some kind of music that has a sensibility that can kind of convey that. And of course, opera does that better than anything, you know. I mean, again, opera is very emotionally dynamic music in that you can go from, the, the, you know, huge big moments to the smallest tiniest little aria so james got onto that quite early on but then he said okay but it can't sound like an opera <laughs> because this is supposed to be this central song was supposed to have been a recording from an alien civilization from thousands of years ago so he said it's got to feel like an opera but it's got to feel profound but it can't sound like an opera so that was one of the... <laughs> I'm like, okay. Um, no pressure I, here. Yeah, but I knew exactly what he meant. You know, it had to have that almost philosophical thing about it because the lyrics in the opera that we ended up contriving were, you know, very profound philosophical messages which were tied up in this song. And there's a moment in the movie where the high evolutionary explains to Rocket what the lyrics mean and what they mean to him and what they meant to his ancestors. So it's a very profound, important piece. But, you know, we, we kind of got there. I mean, I listened to some Renaissance music, you know, because I love that sort of period of classical music because um, it's very dark, it's very religious, it's, it's got strange overtones to it. So I ended up writing this tune that started almost like a tone poem and, and I used Latin lyrics to begin with, just so the, the opera singers would have something to sing, you know, just so it felt a little bit otherworldly. And it went through a few versions, and there was, I think, the third version James just loved. He went, we've got it, we've got it, this is it. But the idea was always that James was going to write an alien language and then write the lyrics to the opera in the alien language. So that was another challenge. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, James is one of the, if not the most musically intuitive and savvy directors I've ever worked with. So, you know, he took the melody and he wrote these alien lyrics with the perfect inflections, with the perfect everything, and it all worked. And when there was a really chilling moment, I remember when we got Anna Schubertin and Abdil Gonzalez to re-vocal, because they'd already sung the Latin for the demo. And when they came in to sing the final version with the 
alien lyrics that James had written. It was chilling, you know. It was like, oh, this is gonna be awesome, you know. <laughs> it was that feeling of like, moe gaste fauna. It was like, oh my god. I mean, I believed it, you know. So I thought, wow, this is gonna be, this is gonna be great, you know. So that really worked out. And there was a few other pieces that were written in the style of that original Alien opera that, you know, are in other moments of the movie where we're dealing with the high evolutionary. But it, it was just one of them things that really worked out well. Yeah, it's an absolute high point of the album, and it, it almost deepens our understanding of the high evolutionary in the movie itself. Yeah, I mean, that's the, I, I mean, that's the whole point of everything, it, is to enrich and deepen the story and the characters, and, you know, hopefully the audiences will, will feel that, you know, because I certainly felt it when when these guys came in and sang it. The Four Scores playlist is available on all major music streaming services. Experience the magic behind the music you love whenever you like. So there's a big orchestra and choir here, mm -hmm. but there are also elements of rock in this score. <laughs> and there's electric guitar, and there's sort of big drums, very contemporary sounds. Why does that particular mixture work for the Guardians? It's a hard mix. I mean, I have, you know, I kind of made my own sound, I guess, from from mixing orchestras with, with more modern instruments, you know, I mean, they call it a hybrid score. So, you know, even now, I mean, I, I still have to rethink it every time. It's, it's really tough, you know, I mean, things like brass and distorted basses, for some reason, go together amazing. <laughs> you know, guitars and choir will go together, but then you try and put woodwinds in with you know, a fuzz guitar, and it's the horriblest thing you've ever heard, you know. <laughs> so I've kind of learned by trial and error what works and what doesn't, but it's amazing how some of the things do work. But, you know, from the beginning, from my very first conversation with James, you know, he didn't want this to sound like some kind of generic superhero score. I mean, he, you know, I mean, it's James as well. I mean, he's never going to want that. So we were both obsessed with coming up with a sound and a tone and a palette, we called it, you know, palette of instruments that, that would, you know, so that you could put 10 seconds of the score on and people would go, oh, that's from Guardians Volume 3. We wanted a unique sound. So, you know, me being a guitarist, first and foremost, that's the first thing I kind of grabbed. But also, you know, I got to use a lot of analog synths on this in ways that I'd never used before. And it was funny, I did this thing, you know, because it's so easy to fall into that lizard brain thing of like, oh, I'm picking up my favorite guitar I'm gonna play. I kind of got different guitars for this and a different bass just so that I could be thinking differently when I picked these things up. So I used a, a baritone guitar on this for the very first time just because it forced me to think differently because you know you have the baritone guitar it plays lower than a normal guitar so i had to think but at least i wasn't falling into the rut of oh there's one of my riffs and there's one of my cut 
So it forced me to think of it. And I got a Rickenbacker 4001 bass, you know, the Paul McCartney one that he used on Sgt. Peppers and Abbey Road and everything. And that plays so differently to the way you would play most basses. So I got to, I sort of wanted to freshen myself up a bit, you know. But I like to use guitars in quite a strange way, and, and especially basses too. I mean, a lot of the, what you would think is a big wall of guitar sound is, is usually mostly basses. I kind of play bass guitar like guitar most of the time. So, you know, that, that helped to bring about a unique sound. And, you know, we used a lot of metal percussion in this. Tyler, my producer, went to the hardware store <laughs> and brought back like all this random bits of metal junk. Um, <laughs> and so we started hitting this stuff with, with different beaters and some of the sounds were amazing. In fact, the best percussion sound on the score is actually an immersion heater tray that for whatever reason just made this amazing sound, you know. Um, so we were doing stuff like that and, you know, there were some instruments I'd never used in the score before. I bought all these tongue drums from a, a guy called Boris in, in Hungary who um, builds these beautiful, I mean, they look like little UFOs. And they have like um, little rivets in them, but the tongues are tuned so you can play them almost like a kind of little UFO xylophone thing. So I got a load of these in different keys. And in fact, the very first sound you hear on the score as, you know, as the Marvel logos are coming up is the tongue drum. Because it's just got this percussive but really innocent childlike sound. You know, and of course I put everything through fuzz pedals and stuff. So the minute, you know, you know, the minute I love a sound, the first thing I do is look at Tyler and say, okay, let's put it through a fuzz pedal. You know? <laughs> it's like, yeah, come on. And we also found this this instrument that looks like a medieval torture instrument called a Marvin. And it's like a big, it looks like something taken out of a 1930s car. It's like this big echo chamber thing with wires and, and bits of metal and springs. But when you play this thing, it just sounds like otherworldly, you know? Because that's the thing with space movies, you're thinking, well, I don't just want to use strings and bass. You know, you want to have some sounds in there that no one's heard before. So we had all this metal percussion and, and you know, we got some really good, unusual guitar sounds on this, I think. So that was enough to make it feel like it's something different. So you lay all this down in your studio before you go to London then to record the orchestra and the choir. Yeah, all that stuff's done and recorded because we record that ourselves, you know. Sure. I mean, I, I tend to play everything myself, just force of habit. There was so many indie movies I did when I started. You know, the thoughts of hiring musicians were never in the budget, so I just ended up playing everything, you know. I mean, even learning instruments sometimes, you know, I just learn an instrument and then I'll go, okay. You know, and then I would play things. And now I can't imagine it any other way. I just like to to just get a new instrument, learn it quickly, and, and then use it, and then just play it myself. Yes, and it's your sound. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what, if there's any charm to me, I think with the musicianship, it's because it's so bad sometimes. Because <laughs> I'm probably just learned to play something. I remember on, I did Les Mis a few years ago, and, you know, I wanted... I desperately wanted to get this rustic cello sound, but it was so throughout the score, I thought, I'll just get a cello and learn to play it. 
but I was so bad. It sounded really rustic. And I remember the producer saying, so what's that sound? And I'm like, it's a cello. And he's going, no, it's not a cello. I know what it is. And he's like, it's really weird and scratchy and, and organic. I'm going, it's a, it's a cello, but it's me playing the cello. It was so bad and horrible, but it suited Valjean. So, you know, it just worked out. So, so I, you know, I've tended to trust myself with that. Sometimes it's good to just not to worry about musical perfection and just go with the vibe. I have to tell you that I especially loved the elevator music, <laughs> which happily is included on the score album, but I yeah. understand you had help with this particular piece. Tell us about that. It, that was one of the coolest things for me doing the music was, yeah, I mean, again, that was a theme that James shot with, so I did that early on. You know, I like to give James two or three ideas. So I had this version of that music that was on the tongue drums, you know, and then I had this version that was kind of quite ethereal. And I'm thinking, you know, it's James. I need to give him something a bit out the, out the box here. And I was thinking of it being almost like a, you know, like a kind of 50s, it's very lyrical vocal thing. And my daughter, Molly, who, you know, I'd already released an EP by then. She was only 14 at the time, but she'd released an EP and a few singles. And she's great at that stuff, you know, the really catchy, like whimsical stuff. So I said, Molly, I gotta do a third version. Come and, you know, what you think? So she um, just came up with this tune straight away because she just does that, you know. So I finished that tune off and then I sent the three versions into James without saying anything. And of course he chose the one I wrote with Molly. So <laughs> I was like, okay, go to bed, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's, it's like extraterrestrial music. Exactly. And that's what I said. I said, what would it sound like if you were in an alien elevator, but like the elevator was playing something musacky and, and cheesy and catchy? And she just nailed it, you know. So so that was lovely to, to sort of write something with my daughter. Earlier, we were talking about the songs that are actually already in the script, even before they start shooting. And, and of course, there's always a lot of buzz about the awesome mix albums <laughs> yeah. that come out of these films. Can you talk about the role of songs in the movie and if the choice of songs has any impact on what you have to do? Yeah, it does, because, you know, for me, I feel this responsibility that, you know, from the moment the movie starts to the moment the movie ends that it should feel like one musical experience, you know, that it's not this truncated tectonic thing. It's actually should be all one experience. So, you know, I'm very conscious and I work with the songs. Once I know the songs are in, and with James, they don't change, you know, he makes his mind up and that's it. So if I know I'm coming out of Space Hog or something, or I've got to go, you know, there's about seven, eight minutes of score before we get into the eels or whatever it is, then, it's something that I have to do to make sure I, you know, come out of that song in the right key, first of all, and that emotionally, the handover into the next song, I mean, sometimes it's 15 minutes and it doesn't matter so much because you're already doing something bigger yourself, but sometimes you've got to make sure that when you deliver into the next song, emotionally, you're ramping up to it. So it's almost like you're writing an introduction to the song. So um, when you get that right, I mean, I'm very proud when I get that right. You know, when, for me, if when the song comes in, it pops and I've got it in the right key and I've got it building up and you don't do your tempo too fast for the song coming in. You have to bear all these things in mind, you know, because if I'm ending a, 
cue in a really fast tempo in in a random key and the song comes in and it doesn't feel great, then I, I've failed, you know? I mean, I have to get you there so that the song just explodes. But, you know, I learned how to do that with Guy Ritchie, you know, doing Lockstock and Snatch. You know, I learned how to connect it all together. And, you know, I, I never went to music school. You know, I was in bands and I taught myself to play. So for me, songs are a natural part of the whole score as anything. You know, I love it when I get to see what the songs are, especially with James. So it's not a problem for me to work with the songs and get you out of there and build you up into the next one. So you recorded orchestra and choir in London? Yeah. And what was that experience like? It was amazing. I mean, I think that last orchestra and choir that we had were the best I've ever recorded. As soon as I knew this was happening, I kind of jumped the gun and had my orchestrator make a list of literally the best musicians in London. The You know, all the best first chairs, the best conductor, the best everything. And we booked these guys so early so that when the time come, you know, we had the best of the best. And you can hear it, you know. I mean, you never get a bad orchestra in London when you're going through Isabel. But this team was was just outrageous, you know. I mean, you could have taken any take. Even the first take was better than anything I'd done. And by the time we got to the third take, it was just perfect. So it was amazing. How big was the orchestra and how big was the choir? I mean, it it varies a little depending on the cues, you know, because you scale it down a little towards your last sessions. But, you know, at its biggest, I think it was 70 or 72. And I think the choir, I think the choir was 40. But, you know, we had it arranged well and it, it sounded huge. How much music is there in the movie? I think there's about a hundred minutes. And you were on this project for at least two years, right? Yeah, I mean, from writing the original themes, I mean, there was this big gap in the middle, but it spread across two years. Yeah, I mean, you know, there was the two months of writing the original themes, and then there was the big wait, and then there was the last three three months of working to picture. So it spread across a long time, but um, but yeah, it was it was an epic epic project is this the biggest project of your career yeah yeah in in scale in amounts of music in amounts of cues i think there was the you know there's a hundred cues in there so yeah i mean in fact i think where we mixed the music was at igloo i remember justin saying just before we finished mixing that it was the biggest amount of tracks on their pro tools <laughs> session that he's ever seen in a movie and they <laughs> mix movies non-stop and they mixed the first two guardians movies so it was just epic in every way. So you've worked in both the Marvel and DC universes I now. I have. Between Guardians and Suicide Squad. Is it a different sensibility, or are comic book movies pretty much the same genre? They're the same genre, but there's, you know, there's obviously a tone with DC and there's obviously a tone with Marvel. And you have to be conscious of both as well. You know, I'd be lying if I didn't say when I sat down to do this that I wasn't conscious of this amazing history of Marvel music. I mean, you look at some of the composers, you know, who have written for Marvel and are still writing for Marvel. It's like the best of the best. So I did sit down and go, deep breath, you know, (laughs) let's go. So 
I was conscious of this Marvel sound. And there are moments throughout the score, even though we were trying to do something that would stand out on its own, that it, you know, there are moments where you obviously want it to feel like very much like a Marvel score. And, and in those moments, we did that because I wanted to do that. You know, I wanted to hear that too, you know, because we all love that sound. You can't love these movies without loving that sound. So, you know, a lot of moments, especially with the action stuff and the big battle, it was, it was great. Now I can get a bit Marvel, you know. So it's kind of, you know, I hope it has the best of both worlds of it being a very, you know, unique score, but it also has our big Marvel moments when we need it. And a great deal of emotion in that last half hour. Boy, the tissues were coming out all over the theater. <laughs> I know. I mean, I almost cried reading the script. And it was funny watching it at the premiere. It was the things that really hit me in the heart from the script. The same things that hit me watching the movie. So, again, it's that's just great filmmaking, you know. Um, but it was all there, and the, it was all there in the original story. But very emotional, yeah. What are you on to next? Big break. <laughs> you need a vacation now. I do. Well, yeah. I mean, my son's going to college in a few months, and he's the first to leave, so I want to spend every second I can, you know, before he goes. Um, and Molly's about to record an album, so I'll be brought in to do some bits and pieces on that. Yeah, I just want to spend some, you know, some time with family, and I've got a few of my own projects I want to do. I like to have big breaks because then you get excited about doing another movie. You know, in the old days, I used to do film after film after film after film. It just burns you out. And you don't do your best work that way. I like throwing everything into something and then completely do nothing like it for six months or something. So um, that's my plan. Well, congratulations, John, on this huge accomplishment. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, John. It's been a pleasure. Real pleasure. Disney's Four Scores is brought to you by the Four Scores Playlist, featuring music and interview clips from each composer featured in the podcast series, including John Murphy's score for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Check out Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 in theaters, watch Guardians of the Galaxy Volumes 1 and 2 on Disney+, and listen to the soundtracks wherever music is enjoyed. (laughs) ¶¶